the county assessed value of a property is usually lower than what the actual market value is, depending on the county you're in. So think about it from the idea of you own vacant land and the only thing you're doing with it is paying the property taxes each year. You could design a campaign and I did this myself and it was very, very effective. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, Migrate to Wealth listeners. Today's episode has a little bit of sound quality issue, and I thought of adding a disclaimer to it before you actually launch the episode itself. There's some echo and some background noises. Overall quality is okay, but there's a few spots that was bothersome to me. So I thought of recording a quick disclaimer on that. But regardless, I really hope that the little bit of sound quality issue is not going to deter you from gaining insights from what Mason has to share. He's a great land investor. He's been doing it for a while now and very energetic, very enthusiastic, and very sharing about his business model and stuff. So sit back, take good notes, get your favorite beverages, and listen to the episode. And we appreciate you dialing back on a regular basis. Thank you for your time and thank you for all your love. Take care. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today, we're actually talking to Mason McDonald's, and I'm going to ask him a question. Does he have any relationship with McDonald's family? My great grandfather actually sold a good amount of burger chains in Houston, Texas to the McDonald's chain. Yeah. I so, thought you were going to say no, none. There you go, man. Nope. Nope. Okay. Didn't get any revenue or anything like that, and no discounts at the restaurant. How I think I you should. With a last name like yours, you should get some free meals. Don't think I, I haven't asked. That's good. <laughs> can imagine that. Well, Mason, thank you again for joining the show, man. I really appreciate it. Where are you calling from, Mason? Colorado Springs, Colorado. Awesome. Awesome. Beautiful area. Beautiful area. Mason, we'll kickstart this show here. Again, thank you for being on it. As a background, I know you're a land flipper, and we'll go deeper into what that means for our audience to make sure everyone can send the context. You're actually the third land flipper on my show right now, so it seems like we're picking up a theme here. So again, the way we open up the show, Mason, is the name of our show is Migrate to Wealth. I would love to figure out, get your perspective on when you hear the word wealth, what does that mean to you? To me, wealth means you have the resources to live life as you feel you deserve. And that can be financial, that can be time, that can be geographical, high wealth and freedom together. Yeah. And to me, that's the way I look at it. And the more money you can make, the more wealth you have for time and fun and friends and family. Right. right. That's great. So Mason, as you are migrating into wealth, how are you doing with that definition? Where are you in your journey? I think I'm doing really well. I've been a full-time real estate investor, land flipper for about a year and a half. My previous position, I was the CEO of a hospital. And even though I had the status, the title, money coming in, I did not feel like a wealthy person. I was tired all the time. I was not healthy. And doing this transition has made me feel better and like I'm moving towards my vision quicker than ever. That's awesome. And I'm glad to hear that. that I can hear it in your voice that that's what you're saying is you really mean it. I know some people will not be depending on what platform people are looking into. They can't see your face, but I can definitely hear it in your voice. Mason, what has been, help us understand your migration into what you do right now. How did you get to, you mentioned offline at least, that you were a CEO of a hospital. From there to becoming mm -hmm. a land flipper, it's not a logical journey when you start thinking about no, it's it. Not, it's not. So help us understand how did you make that shift? What prompted you? What was going on at that time in your life? Yeah, so 
I have the background of, I kind of had a rich dad and a poor dad. I had my mom and my stepdad that raised me and it was always focused on education and then go get a good, stable job. Jewish mother. So it was either doctor or attorney. Then I had my dad who owned a commercial real estate investment company and I never saw him work and he had so much money to do everything. Yeah. So was always interested in real estate, but I went down that career path when got my undergraduate bachelor's in neuroscience, when got my master's in healthcare administration, worked my way up to the top uh, very rapidly, became a CEO at the age of 26, managing a nine-figure P&L, and it wasn't everything that I wanted to be. So I'd been constantly reading the books, learning from podcasts and everything about real estate investing. I knew that was going to be my future and was going to invest with this gentleman out here in Colorado and syndication deal. And he told me about land flipping while we were grabbing lunch. And I looked into it. I took a course, got started in November of 2021, bought my first deal for $40,000 and sold it for $185,000 and quit my job. Good so for was, you. Good for you. Yeah. It was a grand slam on the first one, which kind of changed my mindset and everything. But that transition right there it allowed me to unlock my potential, go into my own space, be my own business owner, be my own boss. And just really hone in on the process of buying land for cheap and selling it for more. That's what yeah. land flipping is. Like I call myself a pawn shop for land. You know, I buy it cheap from people that don't want it and sell it for more. For There's people that nothing do wrong. Money. Pawn shops make a lot of money. You got in this to get yourself money and freedom, which is we are working towards. So Mason, let's actually dig deep. And we've asked the same question to other land flippers as well. So I'm trying to figure out how to approach this conversation, right? I think one of the things I want to understand is Let's go through the psychology of somebody who's trying to sell your land. And then let's look at the philosophy or the psyche of somebody who is looking at buying your land. So we look at the supply and the demand patterns. So who is selling mm-hmm. land to you? And are they selling you the land at discounted price or are you buying it at retail price? Are these distressed sellers? Who are they? To answer your question, it's kind of all of the above. And the way I do it is we kind of have the flow chart within the business of the motivated seller versus the unmotivated seller, as well as which kind of correlate directly to that the sophisticated seller versus the unsophisticated seller. I always buy at a discount. I'll only buy at a discount. But with the unsophisticated motivated seller, it's people that we direct mail market to and either send them a blind offer or a neutral letter saying that we have interest in purchasing their land. And these people, I I invest a lot in Colorado. And a lot of these people are people that came out in the 70s or 80s and they bought a piece of land and they had this dream of building this mountain cabin and they've gotten older and they're too tired or potentially too old to develop that property. So with these people, with every person, we have a dollar amount in mind knowing that we will make whatever our effective return is on it. So We'll give them an offer. We'll walk them through the process and teach them along the way and make sure they know, hey, you're not getting top dollar dollar from us. You're getting quick cash and convenient. And those are kind of the words that we focus on with these people because real estate transactions can be scary. A lot of people have potentially only bought maybe one home or two homes in their entire life. And you know, maybe they bought land for a cheap amount a long time ago. So if you start using too sophisticated of jargon with those type of sellers, you're going to lose them because they're going to feel uncomfortable, they're sure. going to get defensive, they're going to get insecure, and then they're going to walk away from the deal. We use very, very simple language and we try to make it as easy as possible. And then with the sophisticated yeah. investors, we use different language talking about write-offs and losses to counter their income and all sorts of stuff like that. So that's interesting. You said a few things. And let's go back to those statements. So you mentioned something which is blind offer or a neutral letter. What does that mean? Yeah. So 
Our business, we're entirely direct mail marketing is how we get our leads. A blind offer is we send a piece of mail that's an actual purchase agreement that says, I want to buy your land at 123 Main Street for $25,460. You know, sign on the dotted line and we'll open up our due diligence report. A neutral letter is something like a postcard saying, are you tired of paying your property taxes on your unused land? Give us a call and we'll give you an offer. So there's no number on it. And both work differently. I primarily use neutral letters in my work because going back to the psyche of the person that's receiving this piece of mail, say the property's worth 100000 and you sent them a blind offer for 37000 and they take it and they tear it up and they throw it away. But if you would offer them 45000 they would have taken any- that deal yeah. and ran with it. So you're going to lose so much more if you're not a too, or too high of a level or excuse me, if you offer too high or too low, you're going to end up losing deals. So if you have a neutral letter and the person is open to receiving an offer, then you can kind of learn and judge and through negotiation and you know building rapport, you can make an effective and reasonable offer that they're more likely to accept. Got it. And then how do you find these sellers? Is there a database? Is there repository of information? Do you have to pay for it? How do you find this information? Yeah, I use PropStream. I think PropStream is a great tool. You can use it for land or any sort of asset class within real estate. So I go in there with my basic filters, which is minimum of five years of ownership and typically out of county, out of state, absentee owner location. And I pull lists in counties where, or not even counties, but neighborhoods, cities throughout the states where there's transaction data and net migration data that indicates it's a good market to purchase land. Got it. Information is readily available if somebody can pay for it. I can imagine the Mm -hmm. amount of competition that's in this county, in each county that you may be looking into, because I think your criteria that you set, it's a very common criteria for any real estate transaction, right? That even if if you're trying to wholesale a deal for a single family home or you're buying a distressed asset, that's how you start looking and using PropStream as a database. It doesn't seem Mm -hmm. like it's too different than that. So how do you position yourself against your competitors? Because it doesn't seem the barrier to entry is too high. You're right on. The barrier to entry is it's not very high, which is why, you know, I've got a lot of friends in the land investor, land flipping community, and I teach people how to do it. And people are like, hey, what markets are you in so I can stay out of them? And I don't look at it that way. You have to have the right piece of mail and you have to catch these people on the right day at the right time at the right time of year for that individual person to be receptive of receiving an offer for their land. I feel like I have a higher level of sophistication and I can bring authenticity and legitimacy to the table of potentially providing funds or just explaining the transaction in detail. We ensure every single purchase through a title company or going through an attorney in the attorney states. And I think that makes people feel a lot more comfortable because I think a lot of people feel like they're getting scammed and they get those, you know, cash offer for your land. You know, in addition to that, I do try to personalize my branding. Like one of my most successful campaigns was we sent a holiday card in December with a picture of my wife and dogs and I on it. And people were like, man, your dogs are so cute. And then they sell me their land at a discount. So personalizing the brand and showing legitimacy. We're going to talk multiple views here. So feel free to say you're not comfortable answering the question at any point in time. Because as I told one of your friends yesterday that we had a conversation with Dan, well, the same thing, I'm learning about land flipping because I'm interested in anything that can make me money, especially passively. 
with a little bit of active involvement. So I'm always interested in that. So I'm learning that. So my questions are coming from me and hopefully my audience are going to be asking the similar questions as well. So when I am looking at that, right, personalizing your direct mail campaigns, are you afraid that you're putting too much information about you and your family to folks that who can easily then find you and there's a whole fear that exists behind and maybe it's an unfounded fear who knows how do you sleep peacefully knowing that your wife's information your kids pictures everything is in strangers hand at this point fortunately right now my children are just dogs okay. but to be honest we've protected our asset through various entities and everything to keep our information okay. relatively private but my career before this i was the ceo of a psychiatric hospital and mm-hmm. in terms of places that people do not want to be most patients that are getting into a psychiatric hospital do not want to be there they yeah. have voluntary holds so they could be violent a danger to themselves a danger to others um, med imbalances every aspect of the game of psychiatric and substance abuse illnesses in that career yeah that was scary there were days where i was scared walking to my car because people are in that industry out to get the administrator typically and i think from a risk perspective that kind of oh, yeah what do you mean exposed to a risk which is even more worse than what you're dealing with today so this risk is not even risk to you i can see that yep exactly and i never pardon me like screw people over in business we oh. tell everyone hey if you want top dollar go to a realtor we'll connect you with a realtor We have no problem doing that. If our numbers don't work, there's no hard feelings or anything like that. And of course people are going to get upset if you offer them too low. There's emotion with money. But I feel relatively comfortable being a public presence and trying to protect my address and personal information as best as I possibly can. But yeah, my perspective is a little different coming from running a psychiatric hospital. No, I can imagine that. I think that it's kind of interesting how everyone has a different risk tolerance because of the life experiences they've had. So that's interesting. So help me understand one thing. If you're coming to me, and you're saying that he sack at the pizza land that you have is 100k you can go to a realtor and get 100k if you wanted to or maybe a little bit closer to that but if you come with me i'm going to pay you 30k i'm making up a number why yeah. would i pay you 30k and not get well, 100k so what's that, my motivation yeah, so, to so, sell you at a 70k discount i guess i should say i don't tell them how much i think their land is worth god or it i suggest if you want to get market price We're in the age of the internet. Hop on Zillow and look around, talk to a realtor. We've lost deals. You know, we lost a deal a few weeks ago where we were going to get it under contract for 70 grand and the person called a realtor and they said, "Hey, we could probably sell it quickly at 150." They were going to be happy with ours and then they said, "Hey, no hard feelings, but we want to make more money." You never know someone's situation. And to give another story of a deal where I offered a lot more where this gentleman had two lots that he had thought a long time ago. I'd offered him 47,000 for each lot and he said I think you offered too high. And I said, "Okay, well, what do you think is fair?" And I just shut up for like a minute. Yeah, it was pretty awkward for people that feel awkwardness. Fortunately, I don't have shame, so I don't feel a lot of awkwardness, but it was quiet and he said, "What about 20 grand each?" And I said, "Perfect. I'll sign the contract. Let's execute the agreement." and i sold one of them for 81000 and the other ones on the market for 99500 wow man and, and i mean you actually offered happy. the price but he lowered it okay that's interesting piece like it's always interesting to hear the motivation you cannot make assumptions i think you're right that someone's going to be happy or unhappy until you test it out right you never know mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a business, you know, and it's a margins business for me. And if the margins work great, if they don't so long, I don't ever need a deal to get done. There's right. You know what? 157 million parcels of land available in the United States. There's someone's going to be settled on them. Yeah. Yep. Someone's going to be selling. You just need to find that person, right? It's really finding that one person. Now, let me understand the blind offer. Let's go back to that. When you're looking at the blind offer, how do you know what the value of that parcel would be? Is that information? Because as I understand, it's a very inefficient market, right? And you have not done your due diligence. You have not done anything. You don't know if there's a soil issue there or some environmental crap. You never know. So when you're putting in blind offers, how comfortable are you with those offers? Is there still room for negotiation? Absolutely. The thing is, I feel like a lot of people that are doing this or learn how to do it, they create their pricing schema based on a city zip code or county level. And that doesn't work. I can tell you my house is worth twice as much as another house down the road or one third down the road the other way. And so I do pricing at a subdivision specific level. And that's all based on recent transaction data over the past 90 days. So say the median price for those of you guys that like statistics, we only use median yeah. average. There's not enough. Doesn't work. Average doesn't work anyways. Yep, exactly. So we use median price data over the last 90 days and we offer, depending on the competitiveness of the market, anywhere from 35 to 70 cents on the dollar for it. So I feel pretty confident going in knowing that, hey, you know, if land is selling for $450,000 per lot in this area, if I offer a quarter million, 250 grand, and if I get a deal, I feel pretty confident about it. And, you know, the language in the purchase agreement is, it's not an executed agreement until I sign it. But, you know, I can do due diligence. I can see everything that happens and with my team that does all my due diligence reports for me and determine if it's a fair, or reasonable offer. And, uh-huh. You know, the worst thing that you can do with land is you under-offer because then you're not going to get any responses. Right. With an over-offer, you're able to backtrack and eat crow a little bit and say, hey, I over-offered. I apologize. I mean, it just goes back to that example that I gave you. I'd offered 47 grand on a blind offer for each one. And he said, you over and we still got the deal. So to me, it's all about getting the lead on the phone. Once the lead's on the phone, we'll convert it to a deal if we can get to our designated number based on market price. And if not, yeah. we send a muscle. Got it. And who do you need to have on your team to work on this business? It seemed like you said due diligence team. I'm assuming you have your lead generators. I'm assuming you have your direct campaign producers. You have your call setters. I mean, I can go off and off of how I would do it. But since you're doing it or not, I would love to understand, how do you set up a team for something like this? Yeah. So when I first started, it was just me. I was pricing all the mail. I was sending all the mail. I was managing all inbound leads. I was doing all my due diligence. The only thing I wasn't doing was I don't sell anything myself. I give it to a realtor to sell. Yeah. So now in terms of actual employees, I have a full-time acquisition manager, salary plus commission. He's got over 20 years experience doing this. So he's amazing. He's better at it, at it than I am which is a key member. So he manages all inbound leads. I'm the lead generator. I'm the one pulling the list and sending all the mail. We have a team of virtual assistants that does all our due diligence reports. They tell us everything we need to know about the property. And then we work with local realtors on selling it. And then all of our transactions are coordinated through a title company. So we're a relatively lean business, which is what's nice about it where a majority of the money that we're spending is obviously on our direct mail, but mail's cheap. I pay 57 cents a postcard that I send. And that's not bad, man. You know, I've got that's not bad at all. No complaints. And 
you know, we got a deal recently, paid 350, we put on the market for 675 and it came from a 57 cent postcard. So it's the kind of- I complain on that one. Cannot yeah, complain on that one. Now, how much money do you need to start this business, Mason? I know you started yeah, with 40K, yeah. or at least your first deal was 40K. How much money do you need to have? I think you have to think about it from the strategy that you want to do. I think a lot of people want to say you need no money to get started. You need to spend your money on marketing. You don't need money to buy the actual land yourself. If you tell someone's returns expected if you finance a deal, they're going to be like, yeah, I'll do it. We split the profit. So sure. I say you need at least a few thousand to spend on marketing to get your first deal because depending on the markets you're in and your desired profit, I mean, you're going to be sending a lot of mail. You know, we get one to two deals for every thousand pieces of mail we send. And our margins are high and they're bigger deals than a lot of people are doing. But you have to do the math and you have to be able to afford to send the mail. Like, yeah, you could pull a list and you could cold call, but it's about how much work and how much time you have to spend on it. But a few thousand dollars to spend on marketing to get started. Got it. And if someone was starting out, how would you recommend them to approach this thing? Because, I mean, direct mail campaign is an art. It's not a science. So you have figured it out after doing it for years now, for one and a half years at least. And now you probably have a little bit better perspective of direct mail. When you were starting out, how did you find your first deal? And I don't know if you had a direct mail campaign experience before or if you hired a consultant. How did you get to even write that direct mail campaign? I did what a lot of people did. I invested in my education. I took a land course. That's true. You were saying that. What the land course was. But I think looking at where I was with my first few campaigns and the systems I was using and the software I was using, I was getting a 19% return to sender. So mm. almost 20% of the money I was spending on direct mail was completely wasted because it was coming right back to me. I remember opening my PO box for the first time and I saw a stack of letters in there. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be rich. And all of them were the returns. But yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for people getting started, all of the information is public out there. You know, you can Google how to send a direct mail campaign, you know, for vacant landowners that are out of state and you can find tons and tons of content. For me, I'm the type of person that I like to, I won't necessarily take action unless I force myself to. And I think putting a lot of money on the table to learn how to do it helps me take action and copy and paste what the experts are doing. Don't think you can come in and figure it out yourself if you know that there are people in the community that are successful at this and then iterate from there to figure it out. And that's exactly what I did, where my return to sender is zero now. I get a higher response rate than I used to. So all of the systems that I've developed over the past year and a half, and for anyone in healthcare manufacturing, I've got a Lean Six Sigma black belt. So I'm very focused on process improvement and elimination of waste and reduction of variation. So that's what I always try to do. That's awesome. Now, I think we did touch base a little bit about being this market being very, very competitive. Because as we were talking about, the barrier to entry is low and all that good stuff. How does somebody starting out wins against, I'm going to say win, win is a wrong term, but let's say a deal, find the first deal in the same market as you're in? Is it by luck? Is it because you may have sent the mail, direct mail on Wednesday and I may have sent it on Monday and the person just happened to receive it and open it, made their call, made the decision, gave me a call, your mail just came in two days late. Is it as yep, simple yeah. as that or there's something more to it so that they can position themselves at least at the same level as someone like you. Sakit, I love the question. That gets me excited thinking about it because 
I coach and consult in other land businesses and people will always ask if I'm competent, what markets are you in? So I don't compete. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. You just have to catch the right person on the right day. But there can be a little bit more science to this than you would expect where the county assessed value of a property is usually lower than what the actual market value is, depending on the county you're in. So think about it from the idea of, you know, if you own vacant land, and the only thing you're doing with it is paying the property taxes each year. Mm-hmm. You could design a campaign, and I did this myself, and it was very, very effective. I sent a postcard saying, are you tired of paying your property taxes on your unused vacant land in Colorado? Because I knew that the tax bill from the county treasurer's office was coming out next week. Mm. So you prime them, and then you get a second piece of mail that's sent by someone else, the county treasurer's office, that is essentially doing marketing for you. So you say, hey, stop paying your property taxes. Let me pay them for you and let me buy the land. County treasurer sends her sale in the mail and you know, say, I got a flat tire on my truck last week and that cost $500. Say their county, they got a flat tire and their taxes were going to be 500 that year. And they said, man, I got a postcard in the mail a few days ago about someone that wants to buy my land for me. I mean, you can even follow up after that with a blind offer at the county assessed value. Where if the county assessed value is, you know, 40% of market price and you send a blind offer where that number is in their mind because they just saw that on the county mm-hmm. treasurer's tax bill of what the assessed value is, right there, you sent three pieces of marketing and you only had to pay for two of them. And you're going to prime them. And we talked about it at the beginning. That right there, you're going to be at the top of their so, I anyway, love that. I love that. Love that strategy, man. Because I think this is where we're talking about is we're not giving anyone any script here. We're basically thinking about is all this thing is about problem solving and how creatively these guys are selling or gals are selling you the land because they have a problem. And you'll never know what their problem is because you don't even know these people, right? So you're guessing. A lot of it is a guess game. And your guess could be wrong. Your guess could be right. But I think what you're now doing is because it's a numbers game, if you're only sending 10 mailers, chances are you're not going to get a deal. But if you're sending 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 mailers, chances are higher than more that you may hit a big percentage of people who fit your avatar. And when I say avatar, it's your seller, the criteria, the kind of person that you're looking for to buy the land from. And as you said in in an earlier conversation, that you could have more than one avatar, seller avatar, right? You just, your campaign needs to match that avatar, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. There's never going to be a hundred percent hit because not everyone's problem is the same problem, right? So now you also said at the beginning that there's something, you classify them as sophisticated buyers, sellers. How do you qualify them? How do you define them? Sophisticated, yeah, yeah. qualified seller. I think you can determine it pretty quickly whenever you receive an inbound lead, whether it's, you know, through a website, email, or over the phone because of the language they're using, which is why language is one of the most important things that we have. And if you can tell that, hey, that 350K one, that person had purchased the land 20 some odd years ago and he sent me spreadsheet, you know, pivoted out with his costs over the past years and it was 348,000. I said, what about 350K cash? So you could tell that yeah. That person was a more sophisticated. And it's also, we're Google. You can Google that person and say, okay, like, you know, that gentleman was a former hedge fund manager living in Connecticut. So I knew that he understood finance and I knew that he understood every aspect of the transaction because of his knowledge of the way money works. Right. 
Correct. So with those sophisticated investors, like I said, you want to use the language that is going to appeal for them because you have a number in mind, but that doesn't mean you can't pull out every negotiation tactic that you have where you can talk about claiming a loss. You can talk about, hey, what could you use this cash that you receive as an investment vehicle for? You can start using different language and talking in a different way and using specific jargon within their industry, especially if you Google them and know, hey, this person's been in private equity for the last 30 years. I'm going to use a more sophisticated approach to them. So the reason they want to get rid of it is they don't need it. Their kids don't Mm -hmm. want it. Um, maybe they were a developer back in the day. I mean, we bought two pieces of land recently from developers that planned on developing it into commercial multifamily. They just said, we're tired. I don't want to deal with realtors. Just get rid of it. I'll take it, get rid of it for whatever price, which goes back to never make assumptions about what people want to hear. Go in with your own individualized tactic and it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And if it doesn't work, why? And then iterate from there. Because if you assume anything about anyone, you're probably going to be wrong. Yeah. And Mason, what kind of lands do you buy? As my understanding goes, there's a plethora of options, right? It's not just one or two. You can go in multiple mm-hmm. directions. So do you buy raw land? Do you buy shovel-ready land? Do you sell it for, do you buy it for developers, for communities? What do you buy them for? How do you look at your uh, D, all of the above. It depends. The way I look at it is, can it make me money? And if it can make me money, then perfect. So I love the vacant and fill residential lots. You know, there's utilities extended to the property line. You know, those are the ones that sell really quickly. That's more competitive. So you might not make as high of a margin, but if you look at it from an annualized return, it's similar to other deals. Maybe the sales cycle is 30 days on that one rather than six months. So I buy vacant residential lots. I do some recreational, not so much anymore, which is you could develop upon it. You could put a cabin, like an off-grid cabin with solar and a cisterns and maybe dig a well if you need to in septic. I'm in commercial or we just put two park properties on the market, one that's for nine townhome units, one that's for either a commercial building, a single family residential, a duplex or three tiny homes, which I love that property because there's so many exits. We're looking at some where foundation has already been laid. We're looking at some where there's an abandoned cottage on it. And I'm working on getting into industrial as well as I've done some agricultural. So all of the above, as long as it makes money. I haven't gotten into minerals. I've been trying to figure out mineral rights, but it takes a little bit of time to figure out that. Yeah, I've been hearing this off-grid concept a lot recently. Is that something new? And what does it really mean, off-grid? You just don't have your electricity being pulled from the grid? Is that what it means? I think that's pretty much what it means. It's just access or no access to city or town of utilities. And I think the pandemic has created a little bit of excitement related to the off-grid life where People want to get out of town. My wife and I were looking at putting a cabin on, you know, some land that we own and people will hesitate, you know, and my wife definitely did. But those tough sheds from Home Depot, you can buy those and put a cistern and a composting toilet and solar and get them finished for like under 40 grand up Mm. all of it for a little 16 by 10 tiny home with a loft. So if you buy your land for 20 grand and put 40, 50 grand into a little tiny home and you have a self-sustaining off-grid getaway cabin for vacation or just an affordable housing solution. You never know your end buyer, but there's a lot of opportunity there. Got it. My God, Mason, I can talk to you guys forever, man. You and Dan are wealth of knowledge, but I also want to be conscious of the time here. It's going to take a lot more conversation. Maybe we'll have you guys together as a panel next time and we can go back and forth. That would be fun. That'd be fun. And maybe we'll bring somebody else who has an opposing view. 
so we can hear all different perspectives, right? We'll try and put something together. But Mason, we're coming to the end of our show. For somebody who's starting out new, give us the high-level blueprint of how they should look at it and what do they need to do to get going. Yeah, I think I can summarize my business in 20 seconds. I pull my data from prop streams and I target landowners that have owned the property for a handful of years and that typically live out of county and out of state. I upload that list into my CRM, which is called Hebel, which I can send mail from and manage my inbox and calls. There's a lot of templates in there and you can create your own. And then I manage inbound lead and send whenever a lead comes in and we get that deal under contract. We serve it to a title company or an attorney to purchase it and then we give it to a realtor to sell us. I don't use my own money in any deals. I do joint venture agreements with individual investors and we do a profit. That's my whole business right there with the tools, tactics, and techniques to- Awesome, my, man. Um, Thank you for sharing that, Mason. Figures, figures. I think, you know, in terms of getting started, I mean, that's a good blueprint. Obviously, all this information's available for free. There's myself and tons of people that teach you how to land flip. But the biggest thing, just take action. Get 80% of the way there with a plan and then take action. It's so easy to start a business. It's so easy to get involved in real estate investing. Yeah. And, you know, it's up to you whether or not you're ready to jump right in. Mason, is there something that we need to be careful of when we're doing the land investing, right? And we talked about the asset protection piece. That is true for any business. But is it something that we need to be very, very mindful of what not to do? Yeah. Don't buy a piece of property that's unusable. I did that. That's the only deal I almost lost money on was I bought a piece of property that was zoned open space and I didn't do my due diligence and it was zoned open space in perpetuity. I bought it for 5K, ended up selling it to the HOA in the neighborhood for 6K. I'm in $141. Don't buy land that no one can possibly use in any capacity. It's few and far between, but they're out there. Other than that, it's my picture you purchase it at a discount because there's so many exit strategies with a piece of land that you can determine. You can wholesale it, you can double close it, you can buy and sell it, you can sell or finance it, you can develop it horizontally, develop it vertically, or go live on it yourself. So just make sure you get in at the right amount and consult with the poet. Awesome, man. Mason, thank you again, man. So we're coming to the end of our show here. So let's actually switch gears. Of course, you've learned a lot, not just in your current career, but even before where you were running a hospital. If you were to go back to your younger self, what are one or two key insights you'll give to that person to make their migration in life more intentional? I think it's recognizing that you're never going to learn everything until you take action. And I approached that in my career and I didn't approach that in my investing career until much later. So if I could go back, I would say take action earlier because that way you can actually start moving towards and migrating to having actually real wealth and real health and real freedom, but take action. You don't have to get everything perfect the first yeah. time. That's how you learn. Awesome. Perfect, man. Mason, we're going to take a little bit higher perspective right now. The next question, in your interactions with everyone else around you, where do you believe humanity as a whole should migrate towards? Wow. It's a powerful question because I think if you consume media and social media, it feels like there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. But go outside and interact with people and people and humanity actually have a good amount of decency in them. And I think that feels like we're at the climax of human history right now. There's so many fascinating things going on, you know, in tech. I mean, it's kind of silly and sounds conspiracy theory, but yesterday, if you saw breaking news of the former government official that mm -hmm. you know, confirmed that there's life on other planets. You can check Fox News, CNN, everything like that. So we're at an interesting time in human history. And I think that technology is going to help allow us to 
rid the world of poverty, rid the world of hunger, and give people time to actually focus on being healthy and being happy and being free. So yeah, I think humanity is hopefully moving in the right direction through technology if we can effectively utilize it. So. Awesome. It's such an insightful answer, man. Thank you, Mason. Mason, thank you again for coming on this show. If people were to find you, look for you and get in touch with you, where can they do that? Yeah, Socket, it's been a pleasure to be here. I think the easiest way is LinkedIn. Look up Mason McDonald, Colorado Springs. You'll be able to find me on LinkedIn. I have a coaching website, coachingwithmason.com. You don't actually have to using you the service, but I have my calendar link on there as well. If you want to just book time to chat about real estate investing or land or the future of the human race, I'm happy to chat with anyone and everyone that's listening to your incredible show. Perfect, man. Thank you again, Mason. We'll have you back, man. This is a great conversation. As I said, I wasn't joking. We'll get a panel done in the next few weeks here or maybe months. We'll get it done. I love it. Yeah, I'll hold you to it and I'll follow up with you on it. It's been great being here, Saunders. Perfect. Thank you, buddy. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.